Hi, my name is Simon Lockhurst, and this is Season 2 of Ear Movies, Conversations with Buckthumper. The concept for these stories has always been standalone, long, short stories. Movies for your ears. You can listen to one or listen to all of them. After writing The Golden Bell, however, another what-if niggled me. Or actually, more of a what-happened-next. I realised there was more of the story to tell, not just in a chronological sense, but also because there was another voice to hear from. While Olympus overlaps the Golden Bell, it works as a standalone story as well. I'd met Victoria Haralibido years ago when she came into the ABC studios to read a part in my play, Concerto for Humans and Semtex. I've seen her in a few other things since as well. She has a quiet intensity that I felt was perfect for this role. I hope you like it. Olympus. Tina hated the alarm clock. If there was a heaven somewhere, there would be harp-playing angels sitting on fluffy clouds, but no alarm clocks. Hell, on the other hand, would be full of them. Whenever a tortured soul had finally drifted off to sleep and was getting a break from constant whipping or slicing or being boiled in blood, a ringing or a clanging, or a buzzing, would instantly jerk them back awake. Alarm clocks were the work of the devil. Getting up at five simply did not suit her. She understood that the café needed to be open, and that without it, they had no income. It didn't mean she liked it. All she felt was the ever-present mud of tiredness slowing her down. It made every step heavy and every thought cloudy. She'd never been good at getting up early. All through her childhood, her mother had screamed at her to get out of bed. Her father had projected his disappointment with Olympic-quality effort. They'd tested her iron levels. They'd sent her to a counsellor. 
there'd been prayer after prayer and candle after candle. Then she'd married Lucky and the shouting and the sighing had finally stopped. Not because she suddenly found energy, but because she was now Lucky's problem. Not long after her marriage, her sister, the bright star of the family, had met a cane farmer from Townsville. They'd become engaged. Then both her sister and her parents had moved to North Queensland. Tina had felt both very angry and very sad. Lucky's parents owned a cafe called the Golden Bell, and they both started working there. She viewed her feelings toward the cafe the same way she felt about Lucky. There had been an initial first gush of love. This was followed by years of habit and routine based on an understanding that it was necessary for survival. She'd often wondered, over the years, if she'd end up hating it. She'd always thought she couldn't hate the café. It paid them. She wondered as well if she'd end up hating Lucky. But while some people were unlovable, she believed that Lucky was unhateable. She hated the alarm clock instead. It was a reminder every morning of another day gone. She had never expected to work so long in the café. It had only ever been a step along the way until the children came. Four kids, she hoped. Three at first, and then another a few years later. An accident. She'd spoil this baby more than any of them. But the first child had never come, let alone a fourth. They were disappointed every time her period arrived. It was as if her menstrual cycle was another alarm clock. After about two years, they wondered if something was wrong. They kept trying. After another year, they went to the doctor. Six months after that, they saw a specialist. And another one, a few months later. Lucky was tested. It wasn't him. None of the doctors they saw had an answer to Tina's infertility. She had what was called an inhospitable uterus. She wondered if there was an alarm clock in there. She talked to her aunties about which positions were the best, what time of the month was optimal, even what time of the day. She tried herbs and teas and baths. She went to a psychic, a hypnotist and a spiritual healer. She prayed until her knees were calloused and her throat was dry. She lit so many candles that the church had to order new stock. She started having medical procedures and eventually IVF. The babies refused to appear no matter how much indignity she suffered. She grew used to climbing onto examination tables and spreading her legs in front of strangers. She found herself perversively desiring the coldness of the speculum. She hoped it would work like a medical corkscrew to remove the blockage that was preventing her falling pregnant. As if it was that simple. And every month, with the cramps started and the red spot appeared in her underwear, she cried. At first she shared her sadness with Lucky. Eventually, however, she stopped telling him. He stopped asking. 
it made it worse to admit yet again that she'd failed to conceive. That's how she saw it, as a failure, her failure. The sadness turned into disappointment, and this grew into bitterness. Alarm clocks became the target of her anger. There had been four of them over the years. The first had been a round, bright clock with two bells on top. It was the sort you had to wind each night. One day she threw it on the floor. It smashed into tiny pieces. Its replacement had been a small travel alarm. It was the kind you could fold up into a case. That too required winding. Sometimes she imagined that each twist of the knob was a noose tightening around her throat. It met its doom one day when it was hurled into the wall. It was replaced by a clock radio. It had numbers that turned over like the pages of a Bible. It woke them with a low, droning buzzer. Tina thought of the sound as a symbol for unenthusiastic duty of a shadow by unrewarding effort. After enduring its dirge every morning for a decade, one day she put it out of its misery with a hammer. Her next clock was the one they still had. It was small and digital with red numbers that glowed evilly in the night. It had survived the longest she wondered whether it contained a malice she shared. As the years passed, she developed a relationship with Mary, a girl with dark curly hair and saucer-wide blue eyes. She was imaginary. Tina wasn't mad. She knew Mary wasn't real. She was an indulgence, a what-if that filled the hole made by the absence of a real child. When Mary cried and woke her in the middle of the night, Tina would imagine comforting her lovingly. Waking for Mary was a pleasure. She felt none of the animosity she held for the assassin of sleep that was the alarm. Mary's age varied. Sometimes she'd be a baby, sometimes a reluctant teenager. Tina indulged herself in Mary's rites of passage. Her first words, her first steps, first day at kindy, big school and high school. There were arguments over the length of her skirt, over her bedtime, what she liked to eat, whether she'd help out at home or in the shop, if she'd done the washing up. They talked about friends and schoolwork and going to parties and on dates. Tina imagined so many moments with the daughter she never had. She didn't tell Lucky about any of them. 
One day, a man appeared in the cafe. He sat near the door. He had a broken, twisted face. Mary was seven. She was scared, but also fascinated. What happened to him, Mummy? Don't look, Oklamo. You'll get nightmares, Tina told her, holding her clothes. Mary looked up at her mother. She had impossibly huge candles for eyes. They pierced Tina so deeply that Tina's own eyes filled with tears. It's all right, Tina said. I'll look after you. He won't hurt you. The girl looked at her mother, then at the man near the door, then back to Tina. Suddenly she smiled. I love you, mummy. I love you more, Tina replied in their old ritual. The man kept coming back to the cafe at the same time every day. He was another alarm clock. Mary didn't like him, so she spent less time there, and Tina started to resent that the man was driving her away. Lucky fawned on him, and all Tina wanted was for him to leave. What could have happened to have left him like that? She decided he must have been bad and that the disfigurement was punishment. Tina thought he must have deserved it and wished he would go. She didn't need him sitting there driving their customers away. It didn't take long for her to start hating him. She'd wake up in the night and feel her resentment towards him growing. There was less money coming in, and they were struggling already. She'd look over at the clock sending out its scarlet time rays, draining her future and drenching her in the past. Time was robbing her of everything. It wasn't a thief in the night. In fact, it delighted in daylight robbery. It had taken Tina's family to Queensland and never brought them back. It had killed Lucky's parents. It had stolen the style and tone of the suburb ripping it away like it had never existed. Time had taken away her friends. In their central coast caravan park, it abducted her old summer neighbors. Now there was too much brightness everywhere. Time was shiny. Colors, dazzling steel, and too much white paint. She wanted the dull brick of solid houses and the worn luster of old cars. She yearned for faces shaded by recognition and experience. She wanted lines and depth, not smoothness and walking deception. She wanted value in earning, not an undeserved sense of entitlement. She hated time, and she hated time's messenger, the alarm clock. It's screamed at her every morning, reminding her of all that it was taking. It was another day removed from hope. Tina tried to put her energy into her work. She shared that with Lucky. They channeled themselves into their food and found pride in what they made. She would tell Mary about the importance of effort. Put something of yourself into everything you make. Don't cut corners. 
If you work hard, the rewards will come, she had said. Mary was 14 then, tall and long-necked, her hair falling to her shoulders in beautiful thick waves that some nights took an hour to brush. Her huge eyes turned to Tina. There are no guarantees in life, Tina said. Some who aren't deserving are given everything. Some who are needy are given nothing. But with your own hands and mind you can avoid the need and pain of luck because the reward is in the making. Tina turned to Mary wanting to hold her but unable to as her hands were covered in butter. I work to make the best fish and chips. I put thought and care into every batch. The people who come through our door won't come back if the chips are soggy. They'll stay away if the fish is overcooked. But more than that, I can't think of making butter and frying every day if I don't love what I'm doing. Lucky is the same. We take pride in our work, Oklahoma. Tina knew Mary was not destined for the cafe. She was going to be a doctor. Or maybe a lawyer. She would study, find her passion, follow it, and be successful. In time, she'd meet and marry, and then Tina would help with the grandchildren. She'd spend hours with them once Mary returned to work, coming over to their nice house in the morning, hearing them call, Yaya! Yaya! She'd slip them some lollies when Mary wasn't looking. She'd take them to school and pick them up and have dinner ready for Mary and her husband at the end of the day. Mary was standing there in her early twenties as she and Tina watched Lucky take the man a hamburger. Shall I make a moussaka for you tonight? Oh, Mama, you know Louis loves your moussaka. He thinks you are a better cook than me. Tina was a better cook than Mary. Tina knew that Mary was coming along, but she knew as well that she needed to spend more time in the kitchen. Mary would get there with enough practice. But she worked so hard in her office, she was watching her father serving the man at the door. Why doesn't Dad just ask him to move along? I don't know, Tina said. We're suffering. He says the man has suffered more, but we can't keep losing customers like this. Mary kept watching Lucky, shaking her head. I know Dad means well, but it's just not practical, she whispered to Tina. You don't need to come over tonight, Mama. You're tired. If you want to rest... Don't be silly, Tina said. I'll always have time for you. Mary kissed her lightly on the cheek. Oh, Mama, I have other news. I'm pregnant. A large port clattered to the floor, startling Tina away from her fantasy. Lucky hurried over. Are you all right? He asked. Tina looked down at the saucepan on the floor. It slipped out of my fingers, she explained. Lucky bent down and picked it up. I'm glad it was empty, he told her, hanging it on the rack. Tina wanted to tell Lucky the good news. She wanted to hug Mary as well, but she was nowhere to be seen. All she saw at his usual table was the man with food falling from his fractured face. She wanted to go over with a mop and bucket. 
she'd stand there and catch every crumb. Make it obvious that he was making a horrible mess. Perhaps then he'd leave and things could return to normal. She didn't move from the counter and looked around for Mary again instead. She had returned and was sitting at the table in the back. She was now a surly 14-year-old. Tina went to her. I hate that, she said. You should never hate your father, Tina said. Why do you hate him? That man. He shouldn't be allowed. Tina was quiet. Why doesn't Dad tell him to go? Blackie was washing up. The man had finished eating and was sitting there, staring out the window as usual. If Dad doesn't say something, I will, Mary said. What will you say? Tina asked. I'll tell him he's not welcome here. He has no right to scare away our customers. Tina looked across at her. She was in that precious stage where the last pieces of childhood were about to be washed away by the rising adult. I'll talk to Dad tonight, Tina promised her. Mary shuffled her school books around and Tina couldn't help noticing something. Is that a letter? she asked. Mary looked at the table and quickly gathered up a piece of paper. Uh, it's a note, she said. A love letter? Tina asked. Mary went quite red. It is, Tina said. Who is it from? The boy in year nine? Mary nodded. Oh, Mama, he's so cute. He has long, blonde hair, and he's so polite. You'll like him when you meet him. He's very respectful. Mary took out her phone and showed Tina a photo. Huh, he's an attractive boy, Tina said. Yes, said Mary. And his face is not broken. Tina lay awake in the pre-dawn. She knew Lucky was awake as well, but like her, pretending to still be asleep. Tina was ready for the gentleness to have its throat slit by the alarm clock. Down the hall, the baby Mary slept in her cot. A dream landscape of clouds and princesses. No, she wouldn't have princess dreams if she was a baby. They'd be of milk and cuddles. Her mama's eyes. Tina's eyes. She'd bend down to pick Mary up and cover her with kisses. She'd help Lucky to get ready for work and see him out the door. Then she'd spend more time with Mary. She'd bathe her and take her for a walk in the stroller. They'd spend time together in the park on a blanket, on the grass, under the trees. Home for a blissful nap, waking to her cries and not minding her cries. Mary was the perfect baby. Tina was sitting in the back of the shop doing the books. She'd always done the books. Lucky was better with the customers. Not much better, but a little. But she was better at the books. She'd been good at maths and she'd done commerce until the end of fourth form. 
The problem with numbers, though, was that they didn't lie. She didn't like what she was seeing. There was a persistent downward trend, which has started to accelerate with the arrival of the man. He was in his seat now. Lucky was staring at him in that way that he had, lost in imagination and empathy. The man was oblivious, gazing out of the window. Three people in the cafe, each in their separate worlds, one at the front, one in the middle, and one, her, at the back. She closed the ledger. Christmas was coming and they'd have more customers. Not as many as they used to when the large stores were in the main street, but still some. Tina knew their cafe had become slightly fashionable again. The hipsters. She had been told they were called hipsters. Liked its 70s charm. Only there was a man with a cruel face who was now their gatekeeper. Without realizing, she crushed the paper she was holding into a small ball. Why are you upset, Mama? Mary was nine, wide-eyed and caring. I'm not upset, Kuklamu. Mama, you're not a good liar. What's the matter? And Tina would have turned to her and said, My life isn't what I planned. We wanted children, but we couldn't have them. I married Lucky, who I still care for, but the love has dwindled. And now our business, never the best, is being killed by the man at the door. Mary would reach over and take her hand. What are you talking about? You have me. And Tina would smile. Was it too much to want you to be real in the flesh? Did I do something wrong? Mama, you've asked that before, a lot of times. They're on the news all the time, the mothers who don't care, who have their babies taken from them. Why could they give birth and I couldn't? Mary was on her lap now, her narrow arms around Tina's shoulder. Three of them in the shop, one in the front, one in the middle and the other sitting along at the back, wishing for the feel of a child's hands on her neck. Tina became meaner towards Lucky. It wasn't how she felt about him. It was everything else. The man, money, time, and the damn alarm clock. Then one day, the batter went wrong. Her batter was the reason the shop had done so well for so long. She mixed it with care and precision, flour and some milk and soda water. It was always light and crispy. She always used the same bowl, the same kind of flour, the same everything. But something had started to go wrong. It was turning out thicker than it should be. Then she added more water, it became too thin. Normally, her consistency was perfect after she adjusted it for warmth. You had to adjust it for warmth. More water in summer, less in winter, of course. But now it just wasn't right. It was taking her longer to get it closer to what she knew it needed to be. She threw away batch after batch, secretly, so that Lucky wouldn't know. If Lucky knew, he'd tell her not to, that it was all right. He didn't know how it had to be. 
She didn't make coffee as well as he did, but he knew nothing about butter. One afternoon, she made three batches, and he never knew she threw away two. Even then, the last one was barely acceptable. Lucky pretended not to notice, but how could you not? She hated him for lying and stopped talking to him. She started to deliberately bump into him. Once, twice, three times. She dropped fish into the oil while his hand was too close and burned him. She wasn't happy when she heard him, but on each occasion the anger inside her was just too strong. She couldn't shout about it. There was too much to say. Her only response was physical. And so she hit against him. She made them look like accidents, although he must have known they weren't. It didn't matter. He didn't say anything to her and she didn't say anything to him. At home, the rage was nearly overpowering. She wanted to scream. She found solace with Mary when she could. The precious child would crawl into their bed in the night, gently lifting the covers so as not to disturb Lucky. Her four-year-old body slipped against Tina's and Tina would stroke her soft hair until the nightmare of her life receded. Tina cherished those moments. The two of them, essentially alone in the world, the mother and daughter connection as strong as anything she knew. Mary would be gone before the alarm blared in the morning, slipping back to her own bed in whatever world she lived in. One evening, though, it wasn't the four-year-old who came. It was the 18-year-old version. Why do you take it out on Daddy? She whispered once the hair-stroking started. I have to take it out on someone. But why Daddy? The batter is wrong, she said. Doesn't work anymore. It should work. But how can I explain that to him? He knows you better than anyone, Mary said. We're going downhill, Tina answered. Too fast. Soon we won't have enough to pay the bills. Daddy's doing all he can. He needs to do more. There it was, plain for all to see, how she felt about it. What would you have Daddy do? Mary whispered, not wanting to wake him. The man has to go, of course, Tina told her. And that would make you happy? Mary asked. Our customers would come back, Tina said. At first slowly, but then more quickly. Mary took Tina's hand from her hair and held it in her own. And would that make you happy, Mama? Tina didn't reply. Mama? Mary asked. Tina stayed silent. You want him to rewind the clock, don't you? Tina looked in the night at the evil red eyes of the alarm. I want you, Mary, Tina cried quietly. It was all she could do to not smash the clock to bits the next morning. She ignored Lucky with brutal determination. She pretended not to notice that time had changed everything in their suburb as they drove to work. It had always been like this, she told herself. The houses were everlasting, the roads would always be there, and their shop was eternal. She sat in the back of the cafe, seething. 
She was a prisoner. Soon she'd be an old woman. She'd be full of hate sitting in a dying shop with a living gargoyle for a doorman. They should have sold years ago. She'd always held an affection for the old building, but now she felt it was betraying her. All she could see was dust and cracks in the wall. The furniture was decaying, the old wooden floor she swept for so long creaked in complaint. Lucky was at the counter. He glanced to her and she turned away. At the door the man stared resolutely into the street. This is how we live now, Tina thought. Our lives are fixed in these positions. Our course is set... We are riding a sea of anger with a bow wave of despair. This is what eternity really looks like. She stared at Lucky. The hate is coming for you, she thought. She'd believed she would never hate him. That she never could hate him. Now she began to wonder if she was wrong. He stood there, his stupid old rug in his belt and his pasted-on smile. She knew she should not allow the hate to intrude this far, but it was like water seeping. She didn't know how to stop it. On Sunday she went to church. She hadn't been to a service for a long time. She and Mary sat together, the girl watching as she took Prospero. Mary looked beautiful in her church clothes, an innocent, fragile, happy nine-year-old. I was once like that, Tina thought. The peace she usually found during the service wasn't there today. Couldn't she be like Mary again, even for a minute? The child was practically serene, a saint in waiting. Then... Fear gripped Tina. Was Mary destined for the same fate? Would she too start to dry out in sight? Would she become empty within? The morning was bright and warm. It was late November, but inside the church Tina shivered. What had made her like this? The clock and the man were the symbols, but the reality terrified her. She walked to the old cemetery next to the church. Amongst the grass and the stones she could breathe again. The calmness surprised her. Surely here, on the cutting edge of death, she should feel worse. She sat beneath the pepper tree on a small bench. For the first time in days she felt no need for Mary. It was just her and sun and the air. In the corner of her eye, she thought she glimpsed something move. An animal? She turned, but it was gone. It had just been a glance. It was a deer, she thought. Impossible here, though. But there had been something. The fleeting image of the animal in the graveyard stayed with her for the rest of the day like a dream that hadn't left. A tantalizing glimpse of something greater, 
She thought about telling Lucky, but she was still giving him the silent treatment. She knew he didn't deserve her bad mood, but she knew also that he understood her well enough to leave her alone. Not that she'd ever felt like this for so long. On Monday, the café was cool and dark against the bright heat of the sky outside. She stayed in her little alcove for most of the day. She chatted to Mary, a 20-year-old, just returned from a gap year in Greece. She was full of stories of what she'd seen. Tina listened to Mary chatter, smiling as she described Tina's uncle's house, which seemed not to have changed in all the years since Tina had seen it. Mary had visited the Acropolis, been to Delphi, and stood in an ancient outdoor theatre overlooking forever. At the door of the café sat the man, a sphinx with no riddle, as silent and damaged as ever. Tina imagined he was putting up a force field to repel the customers. The numbers in her account books didn't lie. The belt around her heart squeezed tighter. Lucky took a hamburger and a coffee to the man's table. She would bump hard against him when they were cleaning later, knock her displeasure into him. The image of the animal she had glanced arrived again. She was surprised. That evening, Lucky began talking to her, explaining that although it was hard and possibly financially disastrous for them, he had to stick to his beliefs. He would not be asking the man to leave. Tina tisked, tisked, tisked. But the following night, Lucky explained again the reason for his decision. He spoke caringly, lovingly, kindly. His determination surprised her. It also soothed her anger. She wasn't expecting that. The more he spoke, the more she began to respect his attitude towards the man. He repeatedly reminded her of the need to show love, compassion and kindness. That's who they were, he said. They were not people of self-interest, but givers to those less well-off. There were people who shared who placed themselves after others, who demonstrated care. One evening in bed, without thinking, she moved her hand onto his back. It had been weeks since she had touched him with anything other than anger, but now she became soft and gentle again. It was as if that single moment changed everything. Lucky was right. A bud of compassion started growing inside her. She had felt bad about the hamburgers she'd been making the man. Now she started to cook with love again. She surprised herself on the last opening day before Christmas when she brought over his meal and told him he wouldn't have to pay for it. She felt blessed when she found he'd left them a thousand dollars on his table. The holiday in Terrigal was tinged with sadness rather than hate. Although the dreaded alarm hadn't been packed, the damage time had roared to the central coast was too evident. She missed the families who used to come. She particularly missed their children. She doted on her nieces and nephews at little Bobby's house. 
She disliked that they didn't want her homemade gifts anymore, but it wasn't enough to deny the love she felt for them. She watched Lucky in the surf and envied how much he loved the sea. Sometimes he'd go far out, much further than she would ever dare to go, and she worried he might never come back. One afternoon it clouded over and a thunderstorm loomed. They were out of cheese and she took the car racing to the shopping centre before the rain. She wasn't quick enough and the water came down so heavily she was forced to pull over to the side of the road. She waited as it pounded down and then stopped as quickly as it had started. The sun came out like flicking on a light. The surface of the road was soon steaming. She stopped by some trees and she looked now at the leaves glistening in the brightness. An occasional trail of mist from the road drifted past them. There were flowers there, birds too, feeding. Then, just for a moment, she saw something else. Something moving slowly and deliberately that competed with the sun for intensity, for brightness, for glare. Her eyes hurt to look at it. Then it was gone. She reached for Mary's hand. What was that? Her thirteen-year-old asked. I don't know, Tina said. But she was lying. She'd recognize what it was. But surely it was impossible. The first half of their holiday felt like it would last forever. Then, all too soon, it was nearly over. On the last full day, Lucky spent hours in the water. Tina knew he'd be burned to a crisp. She told him three times to put on sunscreen, but he'd ignored her. By 8pm, she was rubbing moisturizer onto his $20 note red back. She hadn't stroked his skin for a long time possibly even since their final night on the coast last summer. He'd been burned then too. Also the year before now that she thought about it. Was he doing it deliberately just so she touched him? Poor Lucky. She realized his love for her went beyond so many things. With this realization she began to explore her own feelings for him. For all the long spring and summer since the man had arrived in the shop, Lucky had displayed nothing short of grace towards him, and her too, for that matter. She reached over and squirted another dollop of cream into her hand from the pump pack. Lucky's back was soaking it up so quickly, she kept rubbing. She never touched him romantically anymore. Her libido had left after all the years of trying for a baby. Every suggestion of sex had been a reminder of her failure. Lucky said he understood and had never been upset. He turned to her. She smiled at him. He smiled back. When they went to sleep for the last night in the van, he held her hand. He is the perfect man, she thought. They returned to the other world. Tina expected the hatred to return, 
to eat inside her again perhaps too strongly this time. Instead, the calmness continued. It was still there on the day the meat bill came in, and she realized they would have to close the shop. That last morning, even the alarm clock didn't annoy her. An uncertain future had replaced a treacherous past. She realized unexpectedly, amazingly even, that she was excited for what was to come. The day after they closed, they quietly began the task of stripping the shop out. They started at 6 a.m. and they worked until a knock on the door brought them to a halt around 11. The man was peering in. Tina froze in the middle of loading cutlery into bags to take to the op shop. Lucky was clearing glassware off the shelves and wrapping it in newspaper. He too stopped what he was doing. The man knocked again. Do you think you can see us? whispered Tina. I don't know, Lucky said. What do you think he wants? The man knocked again. Lucky opened the door. The man's damaged face was as bad now as when they'd first seen it. He glanced at Lucky, and then inside the shop with its bags of rubbish, stacked boxes, its piled-up chairs and tables. He took out his small pad and wrote something. He handed Lucky the paper. What is it? asked Tina from the counter. He wants a ham, cheese and tomato sandwich and a cup of coffee. Tina looked to Lucky, and then to the mess behind the counter, and then to the man. He was now sitting at his usual place. It was as if he couldn't tell anything was different. Tina turned back to Lucky. What are you waiting for? she asked. You do the coffee, I'll make the sandwich. Lucky came over to her and put his arms around her. She pulled away, of course, like she always did. Then she surprised herself by coming back. She found her lips next to his and they kissed for a long time. Tina felt more love for Lucky than she'd ever felt before. She knew then that regardless of what happened to them, they'd always have this moment. It was a bearing, an emotional southern cross to guide them no matter what happened in all the years ahead. They made the food and took it to the man together. He looked up, appearing surprised to see them both standing there. Tina saw in that second the man's face became undamaged. He was whole again, and he was beautiful. As if a door was opening on the hinge of what she'd seen, she felt the world change. She said goodbye to Mary and watched her many-aged selves dissolve and float out the door like a movie special effect. The tone of her alarm clock grew gentle for the first time ever. She forgave time. She accepted that the world was not hers anymore and stopped trying to hold on to it. She knew it now belonged to those following. The phone-obsessed, fast-food-obsessed and self-obsessed children. The world itself may have also turned to smoke and floated off after Mary. It didn't matter anymore. Hate and time and her imaginary child had all gone, leaving her with a gentle contentment and lucky and a café that was closed. 
It was all they had now. That and the man. Tina and Lucky made love that night. They surprised themselves with their passion. Tina forgave every exploration he made into the folds and creases of her loose skin. She relished her own intrusions into his. When Tina looked at Lucky in the morning, she thought he looked younger. She surprised herself by reaching for him, and they began the previous evening's adventures in love all over again. Surely they were too old to feel like this. They were used to spending time together. They'd actually spent very little time apart in all the years they'd been married. They'd worked side by side for decades from youth into the shoreline of old age. Now the great ocean of increasing infirmity loomed before them. The first couple of days away from the cafe were fine. Tina potted around the house while Lucky worked in the garden. Sometimes they made love. Then they had nothing to do. Except for a fortnight over summer, they weren't used to having nothing to do. They'd been forced into early retirement, and when Tina did the numbers, it wasn't the kind of retirement they'd planned. What do people do when they no longer work? Tina asked on the third morning. If something doesn't work, it's broken, Lucky said. They were looking at the jam and butter on the table before them, not wanting to eat them. Tina thought she could see it growing cold. I wonder where the man is. Lucky's remark landed heavily on the table in front of them. You think he killed the bell, don't you? he said. Tina looked at him. I thought he was killing it, she said, but I don't think it was him in the end. I think time did it. Lucky looked at her. The strangest thing, he said. That last day, I, I don't know how to explain it. When we gave him his food, somehow his face changed she said, completing his sentence. You saw it too? he asked. I saw it too, she said. The injury disappeared. He was smiling. He was beautiful, Lucky said. He was beautiful, Tina echoed. Why do you think that happened? Lucky asked. Tina shook her head. I don't know, she told him. One of those things in the world you can't explain. It doesn't answer what we're going to do, he said. Then the phone rang. Tina looked at Lucky and he looked back at her. They both turned to the phone sitting on the kitchen bench. You going to answer it? Tina asked. I think it might be fate. Little Bobby was glowing with pride when they arrived at Etalong. He was standing in his driveway with a look on his face like he'd won a million dollars. He wouldn't tell them anything, though. He instead insisted they get into his car. After about half an hour, he turned left and they were in the main street of... Look, sorry, I'm not going to tell you the name of the suburb, okay? It was a street with a fabric shop and a small supermarket and a butcher and a newsagent. Nested among the shops was the faded facade of an old milk bar. Ta-da, little Bobby said. It reminded Tina of the bell. The name was painted in ornate gold letters. Olympus. Why have you brought us here? Lucky asked. It's yours, little Bobby said. No, answered Lucky. 
No, 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 affirmed Tina. Listen while I explain, little Bobby said. I've been coming here for yonks. We do a lot of work for the old families around here. There was one old Greek. He used to be the owner. Had a swag of other places too. Bought them up when they were as cheap as. He reminded me of Baba. Sometimes I wouldn't charge him. He'd get offended like you two just did. But I think he secretly liked it. Some evenings we'd sit outside his house and have a few tsipuro. He liked having someone to talk to. What's this got to do with the shop? Lucky asked. He died six months back. I didn't know. It's not like I saw him all the time. He left me the cafe. He left you this? Tina said. The rest of his estate went to charity, but this came to me. I want you to have it, little Bobby said. Yes, you need the work, but also it's for me. I'd like to see it restored to its former glory. I've had a look around inside. It's got good bones. I'll get the boys to do the big stuff. The floors need sanding and polishing. It will need painting. A few windows have to be replaced and I'll, I'll redo the shitters. What do you think? Tina saw Lucky's eyes had tears in them. He was nodding. We'll organize the equipment, Tina said. The plates and cutlery, the design. Bloody great, little Bobby said. Tina realized she was holding Lucky's hand. Two things happened after that. The first was that Tina found out she was pregnant. She'd been feeling different in the mornings and her instincts told her why. She didn't believe them for a few weeks, but eventually bought a pregnancy test kit. The doctor confirmed it. I'm too old, she said. Apparently not, said the doctor. It's very surprising, perhaps even a world record, but we can't argue with the facts. She was both excited and terrified. She didn't tell Lucky yet. It took a few months for the renovations to be complete. Tina and Lucky tried to arrange a payment system so they could pay back little Bobby, but he was having none of it. It didn't cost me anything. I'm not taking money from you. You're my brother. I have enough anyway. Tina clutched her hand to her stomach, wondering how she was going to break the news to Lucky. She knew he'd be happy, but like her, terrified of taking on a child at their age. He'd be nearly 80 by the time the child left school. Imagine waiting at the school gates with the other parents in their 20s. There'd be a few older ones, sure, but even these would be a generation younger than them. Would their child be ashamed? As it happened, Mary, the first of their four children, never felt an ounce of humiliation at the age of her parents. Because the second miracle was even more surprising than the first. They reopened Olympus. Trade was steady. It wasn't spectacular, but it was more than enough to live on. And then, on the third day, the man arrived. Tina ran towards him and hugged him. Lucky strode over and shook his hand. They showed him to a table near the front door, but he shook his head. Instead, he walked to the rear of the cafe. In the furthest corner was a door. Tina couldn't remember seeing it before, even during the time they'd been renovating. The man opened it slowly. 
a strong light came from inside. When they stepped through, they were in a different country. The man was whole and young, and he was smiling. He was not a man. My name, he said, is Apollo. When Tina and Lucky walked back into the cafe, they were in their early twenties. Apollo had laughed powerfully and kindly. No one will ever question why you are young again. And it was true. No one, not even little Bobby, ever asked how Tina and Lucky had appeared to reverse time, or at least their own little part of it. Apollo explained to them that in order to survive, the gods needed to be remembered. Their existence depended on places like Olympus, where Greeks could visit, whether they were consciously aware of them or not. The gods would often gather in the back room, particularly on summer evenings. After a while, Tina got to know them. They were like bikies, she thought. It wasn't just their leather clothes. If you talk to them with respect, they seemed to appreciate it. But she felt it was important to never show weakness. The gods came and went as they pleased, and their parties went on too late and were too loud. Sometimes in the morning there would be damage, but they'd always repair it. Tina was talking to Aphrodite one afternoon. She was beautiful. Are there others? she asked. Aphrodite nodded. The Roman gods are in Melbourne, hanging out in a trattoria in Ligon Street. You'd think they'd stand out in the city, but they don't. You can recognize the place for what it is as soon as you see it, if you look hard enough. It's just that not that many people do. And the Norse ones? Oh, they spent most of their time in a Norgenvas in Cairns. Tina laughed at the thought. I stopped into Olympus for a hamburger a year or so back. It was the best I'd had since I was a teenager. Because it was so great, I ordered a milkshake as well. And that tasted equally good. I went for a swim and went back for a coffee in the afternoon. Lucky and Tina came and sat with me. The latter was so good, I actually cried. Towards the rear of the cafe, their three children played and crawled and drooled and drew. Tina watched over them, looking radiant as she carried their fourth. Lucky called it an accident. I asked them how they came to be here, and they told me the whole story. I think they thought I wouldn't believe them.
That was Victoria Haralabido reading Olympus. It was recorded in Nut and Butter Studio in Marrickville and was mastered at King Sound Studios. The music was by Trevor Brown. Please check out his website. There's links from earmovies.com. Season 2 of Ear Movies is brought to you in a shameless plug for my audiobook Charlie's Wives, read by Robert Hansen. Based on a true fragment of history, Charlie Brewster writes letters for African-American army wives to their husbands at the front during the American Civil War. In a world of violence and PTSD, he starts to learn about intimacy and women. A slight buzzing sound. A swarm of brown beetles, attracted by the lights, he supposed. Zipping past him, around his head. Hundreds of them. Amazing. One flies very close to his face, zooming by. Then he is back there. The beetles are mini balls. The battle rages. The fear courses through him like he hasn't felt since he left the last war field. He crouches on the road, heart racing, petrified. He remains paralyzed for a long time. You can buy Charlie's Wives from Audible or get the hard copy from Amazon or the ebook from Kindle. There are links on the Ear Movies website. Please come back for more of Conversations with Buck Thumper, Season 2 of Ear Movies. I'm Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.